0: we say
1: Welcome back along to this
0: episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. In this episode, I'm going to start part one of a two-part discussion on the theological position known as theonomy. If you enjoy this episode or the content in other episodes, please consider becoming a sponsor of the show. You can find the links on the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or just visit our Patreon page. Also, feel free to give me a review on iTunes since the more reviews that I get, the better positioning I have uh, for the show in search results, which is really helpful in other people finding uh, us and finding more about the show. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to check out some of the other content that it's on offer at the Christus Victor Network as well by visiting www.christusvictornetwork.com. Okay. With those shameless plugs out of the way, let's get on while the getting on is good. My guest for this episode is Charles Lee Irons, uh, but he does let me call him Lee. You'll hear that throughout. Uh, Dr. Irons received his bachelor's degree from UCLA in classical Greek. In 1996, he graduated from Westminster Seminary, California, with an MDiv degree, that's a Masters of Divinity degree. While there, he sat under the teaching of Old Testament professor Meredith Klein, who, by the way, is going to bear a prominent role in our discussion in these episodes. In 2011, he earned his PhD in New Testament from Fuller Theological Seminary. His dissertation was on the clause, The Righteousness of God, where he critiqued N.T. Wright's interpretation of that phrase uh, as referring to God's covenant faithfulness, and he defended the Reformation understanding of that, as used by Paul, in which it primarily refers to the imputed righteousness of Christ received as a gift from God. His dissertation was published last year in the prestigious WNT series by Moore Sybeck. He is a ruling elder at New Life Burbank, a congregation in the same presbytery of the PCA to which I belong, and he works as a research administrator at a medical school in Los Angeles. In addition, he serves as an adjunct professor at Christian, uh, California Graduate School of Theology in Garden Grove, California. Dr. Irons maintains a website of biblical and theological studies at www.upper-register.com, that's www.upper-register.com. In this episode, Dr. Irons joins me to discuss theonomy and, as you will hear, why he is a critic of such a position. Enjoy the show. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the Freed Thinker podcast. I appreciate you coming on.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Um, So one of the reasons why I asked you to come on, um, and we talked about this in the pre-recording, is that theonomy has been a topic um, of a lot of discussion in especially kind of the reformed uh, podcast world. Um, and one of my issues with it has been that it tends to be, um, kind of lay level conversations. It tends to be rather brief conversations that doesn't really get into, um, the depth of it, um, and so I wanted to have someone like yourself on uh, that actually is an academic that actually has done some scholarly uh, level work on these issues, and to give you the adequate amount of time to to lay out what is theonomy, who are some of the proponents, what's some of the history, but then also some of your 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 robust criticisms uh, of of the of the movement as well. So um, that's that's for for my for my listeners. That's that's why you're here. Um, that's your job. So. Um, the first thing for, for everyone kind of listening is, why don't you just tell us, what is, what is theonomy? What, is, what, is it, what does it mean? What is, what is the background? What, is the, what actually is the theological position?
1: All right. Well, theonomy is uh, a word that comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and namas, which means law. So theonomy means God's law. But it's a very specific understanding of God's law. Theonomy is that the Mosaic law, That was given to Israel is still binding today, including the civil or judicial laws that defined uh, what crimes were and which crimes would be punishable by the civil magistrate. Uh, Greg Bonson, who is one of the foremost defenders of theonomy in his book, No Other Standard, that he published in 1991, he defined it this way. He said, quote, we should presume that Old Testament standing laws Continue to be morally binding in the New Testament Unless they are rescinded Or modified by further revelation So he gave this Statement as his general uh, Presumption of continuity That we should assume That all the Old Testament laws uh, Continue to be morally binding Today He added the phrase standing laws Because he wanted to distinguish The laws that were laid out for all time From the laws that were Specific commands for a specific time Such as, you know, go into the land And defeat the Canaanites That would not be a standing law But the standing laws are those that are part of the case law That are established uh, In the Mosaic Covenant In the Mosaic Law uh, To be morally binding um, Unless, he said, unless The New Testament or some later uh, Passage of Scripture Explicitly repeals that law Or somehow modifies it
0: so th- these would be like the laws about adultery and sexual immorality... Correct. ...and, and those types of... Okay, okay. That's right.
1: Uh, he would also add, though, a very important point, which is that, uh, that subsequent revelation, especially the New Testament, has in fact uh, modified the Mosaic Law in one particular area. Greg Bonson would say that the only thing that has been uh, repealed by subsequent revelation after the Mosaic Law was given... Uh, Are the restorative laws Uh, Traditionally we would refer to these As the ceremonial laws But he prefers to call them the restorative laws Because they are the laws that deal with Atonement for sin So he would acknowledge that uh, In the new covenant Now that Christ has offered the final sacrifice For sins we're not required to go out and offer uh, Animal sacrifices To atone for sins So the restorative laws are rescinded But everything else he would say Which that that would include um, the Ten Commandments, the judicial law, all of that is still uh, in effect. Now, one of the key things is to note that uh, Greg Bonston's version of uh, theonomy is unique because he is saying that it's not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire Mosaic law, except for the restorative laws, uh, that is the moral law. So traditionally, Reformed theology would say that The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, but would not say that the judicial laws are part of the moral law. That's where Greg Bonson is departing from the Reformed tradition and saying that the judicial laws are, in fact, part of the moral law because they are based on and reflect God's unchanging moral character. And that's why they continue on and are not not repealed or modified in the New Covenant.
0: Is this where we would, and I don't mean to jump the gun a little bit, but is this is where we would get into questions of general equity um, with regards to some of these laws?
1: Yeah, the issue of general equity um, raises the issue of is there some aspect of the judicial law that is rooted in the moral law? Is there a general equity behind some of the judicial laws? And uh, Greg Bonson would say, would have a different interpretation of what the general equity of the judicial laws is, in contrast with, for example, the Westminster Confession, chapter nineteen, paragraph four.
0: Right. Yeah, I I asked just be, and and maybe this will become clear later. This this came up in a in a debate um, with J D Hall um, uh, on and uh, J D Hall and. Um, Joel McDermott um, on on theonomy and a lot of their debate circled around the confessions, which was you know some, somewhat um, strange for a lot of people listening. Um, but one of my questions about theonomy and 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 you can tell me if it, this might be better answered later is that the way that they the way that they define it and the way they try to talk about general equity it almost like it's hard to decide what the general equity is because the way they apply it the general equity just is the law mm-hmm. um, so there, there's there's almost no distinction between the law itself and the general equity of the law so if the confession is going to say um, that for example the, the the laws of the State of Israel passed away with that Commonwealth except insofar as they you know the general equity applies, if the theonomist then comes back and says oh well that law is still in effect including the penology. Well, then I'm just not sure what the difference is between the law and the general equity at that point.
1: Right, exactly. So one of the key differences between the theonomic interpretation of general equity and the traditional reformed interpretation is that the theonomic view would say that even the definition of what a crime is and the specific penalties for those crimes is part of the moral law and therefore part of the general equity of the judicial law whereas the traditional reform view would say that the moral law defines what sin is but it doesn't define what crimes are because crimes by definition is a subset of sins that are punishable by the civil magistrate sin is punished by God crimes are punishable by the state by the civil magistrate in this life and the, the punishments are temporal whether it's execution or imprisonment or a fine or whatever it might be. And so the theonomic interpretation of general equity is that even the definition of what a crime is and what is punishable by the state and the specific punishments that should be given for each crime are part of the general equity of the judicial law.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, I didn't mean to have that rabbit trail, but I think, I think that might be helpful for some people following along. Um, so, how does theonomy fit into the broader movement of christian reconstruction so what is what is Christian reconstructionism um, and and why is uh, theonomy um, related to it?
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to to note that um, theonomy itself is just simply that statement that I quoted before of the presumption of continuity unless the uh, New Testament Rescinds or modifies Uh, That's all theonomy is It's just that particular hermeneutic Which says that the Mosaic Law Continues today except for what has been Rescinded in the New Testament But That narrow principle That narrow presumption of continuity Is only one facet Of a broader movement That has been called Christian Reconstructionism And this broader movement um, Has several Elements to it that help to kind of create a context so that you can see why some people are pushing for this idea of theonomy. Uh, so one of the elements of Christian Reconstructionism that's very important to them is Ventilian presuppositionalism. And uh, what that means is that in their understanding, there is no neutrality between uh, God and man, that either God's word is authoritative Or, if you reject that, your only alternative is autonomous human reason. And they like to quote a famous quote from Van Til, there is no alternative but that of autonomy or theonomy. Van Til wasn't using that word theonomy in the technical sense of Greg Bonson's presumption of continuity. He was just using it in the general sense of either submitting to God or making yourself autonomous. But the reason why it's important to see that Bentilian presuppositionalism Is a key aspect of this broader movement Is because this is why they say For example Greg Bonson's book No other standard And the front cover has a, uh, a little diagram on the front Where it shows A circle with a Bible in it And a line through it Equals a circle with nothing in it In other words If you reject the Bible And you reject the Mosaic Law As your authority For a civil government Then you have no other standard So there's only There's only two options, either theonomy or autonomy Either God's word is the authority Or you're making up your own ideas Of how society should be run Uh, A second aspect of Christian Reconstructionism Is Kuyperian transformationalism And this is the idea that uh, Through the influence of Abraham Kuyper That uh, as societies are becoming more secular And losing the Christian heritage of the West that came from christendom in the, in the middle ages we need to try to take society and culture back and transform it to bring it under the lordship of christ now of course that sounds a little bit scary to to secular people it sounds like uh they're trying to take over and force their morality on people or even give sort of um maybe uh sends sends some signals that sound a little bit like the idea of Islam going out and trying to use violence to bring their religion uh, into the public sphere. That's not what uh, Christian Reconstructionism stands for. They don't believe in using the sword to impose uh, the law of God on society. They believe that first society has to be converted. People have to become Christians and they have to Submit to God's word. So they want to use peaceful means, preaching the gospel, persuasion, apologetics, and so on, to bring about a revival in society. And only then, once society has embraced submission to God's word, would these uh, theonomic ideas about the civil magistrate be put into place. So there's Ventilian presuppositionalism, that either-or aspect. There's the Kyperian transformationalism. There's also another dimension to it, and that is dominionist postmillennialism. Uh, dominionist postmillennialism is the idea that uh, through this Kuyperian transformationalism, through this peaceful means, eventually, uh, God's kingdom is going to be expressed on Earth uh, in a way that is much greater than we see now. The vast majority of the world will be converted. All the nations of the earth will be in submission to the lordship of Christ. Uh, The theonomic ideal of how the civil magistrate should operate will be in place in all the nations of the earth. And they use a lot of the passages from the prophets, you know, Isaiah and so on, that look ahead to this glorious day when all the nations come to Jerusalem to hear God's law as their vision for how things will be. Uh, And this will happen before Christ returns so it's a postmillennialism but it's a dominionist postmillennialism because it's this idea of dominion that the dominion mandate that god gave to adam before the fall in genesis 1 is going to be fulfilled through the church as christ exercises his dominion over the nations and then within that we can now see the 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 fourth point of how so there's the first point ventilian presuppositionalism the second point kyperian transformationalism the third point dominionist post-millennialism, but now the fourth point is that theonomic view, and you can see how it fits within that as simply one uh, link in a bigger chain, as one piece in a bigger puzzle, and I could I would call that fourth point, theonomic theocracy Mm. because the point is not simply, oh, we want the penal system of the Mosaic Code to be in effect in society, it's bigger than that they want to see this idea of theocracy that is, God reigning on the earth with his law being uh, expressed in a visible way uh, in the nations of the world. And so that means that the nation of Israel uh, is viewed as a model for all the nations of the earth. And any nation of the earth that does not follow the Mosaic model and the theocratic uh, ideal that we saw in Israel, uh, that nation will be uh, will be, will receive uh, sanctions. that nation will perish from the earth, quoting from uh, from the prophets. so that's the vision of Christian reconstructionism, and theonomy simply is one element within that.
0: so uh, that's that's really, really helpful actually as a grid to to kind of understand the the movement. Um, I, I've noticed in dealing with them um, that especially the first and the the, the last, um, although I can see absolutely how that last actually is just kind of a, a blossoming of the other three, um, the when when dealing with them, that that question of uh, by what standard is like a banner um, that they that they wave, and and it's that was almost, also
1: the title of one of Rushduni's earliest books.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it, and it's become this. It's almost become this thing where look, if if you if you don't agree with us and our you know our our hermeneutic and our interpretation then then you are doing autonomous reasoning right. like there, there's no there's no allowance and it, it's not that there's no neutrality between the believer and the unbeliever it's almost that there's there's no there's no understanding that they that they could possibly be wrong
1: mm-hmm.
0: um there, there's almost a you know for for those familiar with presuppositionalism there's almost a an impossibility of the contrary mm-hmm. view here um, so that's really interesting to see that. And then my other question that, that I actually have for you is the theocracy. So one of the things that I've noticed when talking with um, theonomists is they'll, they'll defend theonomy, but then they'll say things like, well, I'm not saying that we should you know, stone adulterers right now in the United States. Um, right. Because they're going to say, well, we're not in a theocracy yet. Right. But when I ask them, well, should we be, though, um, it gets much less clear. So I, I'm not sure if you kind of have your your thumb on the pulse for for why that I don't want to say it's a double standard, but it feels kind of like an inconsistency. Like they they're saying this. We, we should be living under the law of God. We, sh, we should be living in a kind of a theonomic theocracy as as the millennium, uh, you know, as the as the kingdom advances into this kind of post millennial golden age. But then I think that they—I don't know if it's a sense that they don't want to be considered kind of barbaric. I—I I, just—I don't, don't know what the, kind of that impulse is, or if you have kind of a, a you know an understanding of, of why that might be the case, or if you see that.
1: Yeah, I think that um, that might be the case for some, where there's a little bit of uh, an inconsistency there. But I think that you know if you if you were to talk to someone like Greg Bonson, who has who has died in and now he's with the Lord, but if you were alive today and you were to ask about this, I don't think that it would come across as inconsistent. He would simply say, "Look, we're not ready for that yet. The nation, especially you know the United States of America we haven't yet we're not even close to this. Right. you know we don't even have some basic things in place, like the biblical definition of marriage or whatever you know some really simple things let's let's work on that first before we get to uh uh some of the more." Uh, drastic aspects of the Mosaic law that could only be implemented if the nation as a whole had converted to Christ, was gladly in submission to the word of God, and uh, was ready to to see uh, civil magistrates throughout the land uphold the biblical penal system. But I don't think it's an inconsistency. I think it's just that they have a long-range understanding of how this is all going to work out because of their post-millennial eschatology. Yeah. So they're, they're looking for the long range. They're, they're, they're saying this may not even happen in, in our lifetime, may not even happen in the next couple hundred years. It may take a long time. But this is the goal that we should be working toward. And so right now they're going to focus on education. They're going to focus on uh, apologetics. They're going to focus on evangelism, revival, reforming the church, um, and, and kind of having an incremental long-term view of things.
0: That yeah, that's that's that that answers that kind of. I mean, I, I'm still. Um, I, I noticed some of the the, and it could be that you know just the people I've talked to that have been the representatives um, of it. I, I've kind of sometimes somewhat cheekily, um, you know, ha, have pointed out that these I think are, and I don't know if it's related to the Christian Reconstructionism, but they tend to be kind of far um, right leaning. Uh, You know, kind of far conservative, um, who would almost you know, from my cold dead hands, uh, rather die than um, have the government come in and say that they should, uh, uh, you know, give up however much percentage of their land, um, so that someone else can come in and harvest what they have, what they have sown. Um, Just, just kind of a, I think sometimes a strange paradox Mm -hmm. there. Um, So, who are some of? So we we've mentioned a couple of the names, but who are some of the big? the big names that are advocating this. I mean, is this, well, first let me ask, uh, you know, when did this start? Does this go all the way back? Is this, you know, is this have roots in the early church? Does this, you know, we're, we're not going to play the cheeky game of, well, you know, it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible because I think both sides could claim that. But, but really do we, do we see this, this, this hermeneutic and this theology in the early church kind of through church history or is this a relatively new, um, uh, either a brand new invention, whole cloth, or is this kind of a new um, take on something that maybe was pre-existing?
1: Well, nothing is ever completely brand new. Uh, So there are antecedents. Um, One of the main examples that uh, Greg Bonson would appeal to um, in his book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, is Cotton Mather's work. He was one of the early um, American Puritans. Uh, so there are antecedents. The Puritans did have some tendencies in that direction uh, as far as viewing the civil magistrate as the custodian of both tables of the law, not only the second table of the law dealing with um, you know, horizontal relationships between man and man, but also the vertical and enforcing the true religion. But as far as the this movement with all these four points that I mentioned before, that itself in that specific form um, really goes back to uh, Roussas John Rashduni in the 1960s. And he, he's really the, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. Uh, he founded the Chalcedon Foundation in 1965. Uh, he's a prolific author. He wrote many books. He wrote a book called By What Standard that we mentioned earlier. Uh, he was very influenced by uh, Cornelius Van Til. And Abraham Kuyper, he wrote a book called The Institutes of Biblical Law in 1973, which was one of the first – it's a three-volume massive treatise that goes through all of the civil laws of the Mosaic Law and tries to apply them today. And that was one of the first um, attempts to lay out this vision of of theonomy, of using the Mosaic Law as a standard, uh, not just for personal ethics – Not just the Ten Commandments, but using the entire Mosaic Law minus the restorative laws as a standard for how society should be run. He also had a huge influence on uh, the homeschooling movement. And um, and it goes back to this idea of Ventilian presuppositionalism. If there's no neutrality, and there's only two options, either you're submitting to God's Word and viewing everything through the lens of Scripture, or you're engaging in autonomous reason— which is in, rebe- in rebellion against God If you have that Really antithetical Black and white epistemology Then naturally you're going to say What about education? How should we raise our kids? Do we want our kids to go to public schools Where they're going to be taught from uh, A perspective that is not rooted In scripture? No, and so that's that's the foundation For the homeschooling movement And Rush Dooney uh, in, uh, in his work was Really um, instrumental in getting the homeschooling movement going among conservative Christians. Uh, today, now homeschooling has become more mainstream, and there are even secular homeschoolers. But right. back then, back in the in the seventies, uh, it was all Rush Dooney, as well as Christian schools. So there were also Christian schools that were taught that were based on teaching all disciplines, not just theology, but you know math and science and history. All teaching it from a biblical worldview Based upon a Vantilian uh, presuppositional um, hermeneutic Or epistemology So Rushduni is kind of the father of the whole thing There are two other key figures though uh, In the movement And that would be Gary North Who is actually Rushduni's son-in-law And Greg Bonson uh, Gary North uh, is famous for uh, He's published many books, but he's famous for his – really, his big emphasis was on economics. I think his PhD was in economics from UC Riverside, and he founded the Institute for Christian Economics. He was even uh, a staffer for Ron Paul way back in the 70s, um, and he wrote a lot on on free market economics and kind of combining it with uh, Christian reconstructionist um worldview. He wrote a, a series or edited a series called the Biblical Blueprints series where there would be multiple volumes and each volume would be dedicated to how can we take the the biblical teaching on X and apply it to society today. So a book on economics, a book on international relations, a book on, you know, the criminal system and so on. And so he's providing this idea of using the scripture as a blueprint not just for how we should live as christians in our personal lives and our families but for all of society and uh gary north is still alive uh rush Duny passed away in 2001 um the third uh key figure is greg bonson whom we already mentioned and he passed away in 1995 but his key contribution was his um Master's thesis that he did at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. It was published in 1977 as Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and a revised version was published in 1984. And that book is really, um, even more than Rushduni's three volumes on the Institutes of Biblical Law, uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics has uh, kind of classic status as the key text in which he makes the case for his um theonomic presumption of continuity argument. Uh Bonson, though, was not only interested in theonomy and Christian reconstructionism, he was also well known as an apologist. And so I still remember very well back in the late 1980s I got a hold of some old cassette tapes of a debate that he did with Gordon Stein, who is an atheist philosopher at UC Irvine. Uh, this debate happened in 1985. It's called The Great Debate. You can still go online and YouTube it and find it there. And uh, I remember listening to that when I was just new to the Reformed faith and learning about it, and I was just blown away at how Bonson um, used the transcendental argument for the existence of God. I don't think Gordon Stein knew what hit him. It was just <laughs> completely uh, uh, bewildering to him because he'd never heard a Christian or a theist use that type of an argument. So I have great admiration for Greg Bonson even though I disagree with him very strongly in his theonomy uh view I, I have great admiration for him and, and respect his gifts that God blessed him with intellectually as a debater as a thinker and a scholar and uh he he's had an influence on me even though you know I also strongly disagree with him he's had an influence on me it's part of he, his thinking is part of my my thinking because of some of the work that he did, especially in apologetics. So anyway, those are the three main uh, individuals that you have to look at. Uh, Rushduni, North, and Bonson, they're the three that really provided the foundational uh, blueprints, the architecture of uh, theonomy and Christian reconstructionism.
0: Yeah, I've, I've often recommended uh, the great debate from um, between Gordon Stein um, yeah, and, and Greg Bonson. I think it's. Um, I think it stands in 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 contrast to a lot of the apologetics debates that happen today. You know, right. with William and Craig, who's uh, mm-hmm. you know classical apologetics or sometimes evidentialist. I, I think it's a, a great example, and I I agree. I think Gordon Stein just was not prepared for what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 a lot of times I'll recommend his, uh, his lecture on the myth of neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his talk, his, his talk that he did when uh, Michael Martin refused to debate him um, when he showed up. Um, I think it was called the the debate that never was or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that talk is excellent. So he's, he's very good on a, on a lot of, um, on a lot of issues. Um, it's just when it comes to theonomy that, mm-hmm. um, I, I have some issues.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a, I mean, he, he was, I mean, he's no longer with us, but he was a powerful intellect, a clear thinker. Uh, he was able to use logic in a very compelling and clear way. Uh, his other book, New Other Standard, which is a response to all the different criticisms and critiques of his earlier book, Theonomy in Christian Ethics, is, uh, a great book to read because he just shreds all of the, the responses and says, well, this argument here is fallacious, you know, you have to use Modus tollens here. And he just, he just goes and uses all the log- logistic logic, logic chopping and, and takes it apart. And I really appreciate that about him. I appreciate his mind and the way he thinks. Uh, I think that he made some mistakes of his own in the area of logic, but uh, I do appreciate uh, how clear of a thinker he was and uh i think that he um you know has a lot to offer the church that we can st- we can still benefit from even today
0: yeah definitely agree um who who are some of the other people that um should be on our radar for for maybe writing on this um, either explicitly or maybe um, kind of undergirding some of their, their teaching on other issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after the big three, after Rush Duny, or who's also affectionately called Rush, and Gary North and Greg Bonson, there were a plethora of other uh, thinkers, writers, and leaders in the movement, some of whom have passed away, some of whom are still alive today, who have focused on different aspects of the movement. For example, David Chiltern Chilton, who passed away in 1997. He focused on the post-millennial aspect and wrote a book called Paradise Restored, A Biblical Theology of Dominion. Um, I'll just list off some other names. Ray Sutton, Kenneth Gentry um, have written things. Uh, Kenneth Gentry is a very prolific author. His focus seems to be more on the book of Revelation and interpreting it from a preterist point of view. Uh, Some of the current... um, leaders today would be Gary DeMar and Joel McDermott, whom you've mentioned before. Uh, Gary DeMar was the president of American Vision. Now Joel McDermott has taken his place. They've done a, um, a service to their movement by providing a more popularized uh, presentation of their issues and their concerns and their website. Uh, American Vision has a lot of material on it. Uh, there's also Doug Phillips, who Really focused on the patriarchy aspect of things. Uh, his vision for him was a big movement that emphasized homeschooling, the centrality of the family, all the issues related to the headship of the of the husband in the home and the family, and so on. Unfortunately, uh, that ministry uh, was shut down in uh, 2013 due to a sex scandal. But and that's kind of ironic, right? Because he was really preaching on those issues related to family. Yes. Um, but uh, that does, I just mention that though, not to say oh this just this exposes the Christian Reconstructionists as as hypocrites. I'm not trying to say that, but I simply want to point out that patriarchy is another aspect of the movement. It kind of ties in with the homeschooling movement. It ties in with the emphasis on the family as the place where education should happen and the authority of the man in the family, the rejection of feminism, and so on. Uh, Some other names, Doug Wilson, famous, well-known pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, Uh, James Jordan, uh, Peter Lightheart. Now, those two, James Jordan and Peter Lightheart, early on, they were very closely allied with uh, theonomy and Christian reconstructionism. In more recent times, they seem to have somewhat uh, distanced themselves from it. I don't know if they would even call themselves theonomists anymore. Uh, in fact, James Jordan on his Biblical Horizons website says that he believes in theocracy, but not in Bonsenian theonomy. That's an interesting mm. distinction. I'm not sure exactly what that <laughs> means. He doesn't flesh it out. But apparently he's not as strict on the jot and tittle of the Mosaic Law anymore. Uh, but he still believes in theocracy. So you can see how it still fits in with the general uh, thrust of the movement. Uh, Peter Lightheart, of, of course, is a very he, – he probably of all of the – Uh, members of this movement he's become the most mainstream he's written a lot of books that are published by you know intervarsity and so on and so forth he has a phd from i believe it's cambridge so he's a a much more um widely read and 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 uh um mainstream type of thinker within the movement he has an institute now called the theopolis institute that seems to be focused I'm not really sure what the focus is, but it seems to be more emphasizing issues related to the church and liturgy and things like that, and less focused on uh, the traditional let's go out and transform the culture. Maybe it's still there, but um, it seems like he's focusing on the church first hmm. as the means for that um some other uh things that we could mention too is that there have been some interesting splits within. Uh, The Christian Reconstructionist movement Uh, One of the most famous splits Was between Rushduni and North Uh, And the issue that caused them to split Was which is more important The family or the church So there's these three main spheres That they all agree on There's the family, the church, and the state But which one should we put all of our effort into Which is the one that At least right now we need to be focusing on and Rushdoni seemed to be emphasizing more the family and hence his whole emphasis on homeschooling and so on. And that might lead into the Doug Phillips Patriarchy Vision Forum type of stream. Mm-hmm. Whereas North and James Jordan and Peter Lighthart and those they were focusing more on the church as being central. And so apparently there was a big split between those two and they weren't on talking terms. I don't I don't know what happened, but that was a big rift that happened uh, within the movement. Another rift that is more recent, uh, within the past uh, maybe ten years or so, is over the federal vision, and that's a whole other issue that deals yeah. with your view of baptism and so on. But some theonomists are favorable towards the federal vision, and some are not. So that's another rift within the movement. And then there are some other uh, kind of fringe elements that that many of the mainstream reconstructionists would. Disavow, But yet these fringe groups identify themselves with the movement in some way. So, for example, Paul Hill, he was an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor, and he uh, was convicted of murder for killing uh, a doctor who performed abortions. And he claimed that he was doing it because of his theonomic views. Now, he was totally rejected. Gary North wrote um, a letter that totally disavowed him. So the mainstream Reconstructionists don't believe in using violence, but he thought that it was justified in that particular case. There's also kinism. Kinism is a radical uh, view that's basically racist and saying that, uh, you know, that uh, whites should only marry whites and blacks should only marry blacks. There should be no miscegenation and we should stay together within our own uh, racial or ethnic Communities. And another fringe is Neo Confederacy, which uh, is bringing back this whole debate between the North and the South, but kind of changing it into a different debate so that it's not over slavery per se, but it's over uh, defending the South as a true Christian society. And the North was the apostate branch of America that had become humanist. And so they're defending the South in the Civil War. And uh, Doug Wilson, for example, wrote a book, Defending the South, that caused some waves uh, a few years ago. Hmm. So these are some elements of Christian Reconstructionism that mainstream Re- Reconstructionists would probably disavow or want to qualify. But they do exist, and it should be, we should be aware of them. And these are the, the fringes that cause mainstream secular people, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, to freak out. When they hear about these movements, they immediately go to these extreme cases and say, you know, you guys are just, you're no different from ISIS that wants to go out and kill people on the basis of religion. You're no different from, you know, good old KKK racism. And they use those extreme elements as a a way to tar and feather the whole movement. But I think we have to be fair and honest and say that you know mainstream reconstructionists like american vision uh you know greg bonson all those guys they would reject uh those extreme applications
0: yeah yeah i mean the, so so my podcast is is normally dealing with apologetic issues you know, largely related to kind of new atheism and skepticism. And, right. and this reminds me of, of Dawkins' critique where right. where he basically says, look, you know, I'm not just going to critique the radicals. I'm going to critique the moderates because you guys are the ones that give the radicals shelter. Um, and so I wonder how much of that type of criticism is is um, unduly, you know, there, there's lots of criticism in theonomy, but it, it just always seems to be kind of an undue criticism to say that just because you have some type of, familial relation to these, you know, extremists that therefore you're you're, you know, aiding mm-hmm. and abetting them, you know, theologically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the same with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, were were those guys that went out and assassinated the cops, were they part of the DLM or not? You know, and I mean every movement has to address these types of things. And, you know, I I I think that there is we have to say both things. On the one hand we have to say Look, mainstream Christian Reconstructionists and theonists Totally disavow those things And so we don't We should not accuse them of Being responsible for Paul Hill and for kinism and so on On the other hand though I think that we also need to Recognize, and this is where it gets tough But we need to recognize that Ideas do have Consequences yep. And so those that have defended some of these ideas that have been taken maybe to another step that they would disavow they need to examine what is it in their theological thinking in their system that is leading to that and what can we do to make it even more clear that those people who are using this system this reconstruction system to justify their their evil deeds that they are totally wrong and that what they're doing is a violation of the law of god and i think they need to be clear about that and maybe do a better job of articulating exactly why kinism is wrong you know articulating exactly why slavery was wrong and that it was right for this country to even go to the extent of a civil war in order to uh to rectify that wrong and so rather than writing books defending the south or rather than writing books that you know kind of give cover they should be out there in front and and really articulating why racism is contrary to the gospel and contrary to the word of god so but i mean that's for all of us you know i'm sure there are things in my views about things that that have that could be taken in a certain way and uh I need to stand up and disavow those and show why they're wrong and why they don't follow from the principles that I hold. Right,
0: right. All right. Well, let's let's. Um, I mean, that's. So we've done some some good background. Let's let's head on into um, into the the mire. Uh, All right. Good. So, um, so you so you had mentioned so you, you had given the Bonson quote um, where there's the presumption that the Old Testament laws. Um, continue So so what is um, the problem with, with what you've called The presumption of continuity
1: Right So yeah just to, to refresh our memory The quote from Bonson is We should presume that Old Testament standing laws Continue to be morally binding in the New Testament Unless they are rescinded or modified By further revelation What is the problem with that Well a couple things First of all uh, Bonson claims that this Hermeneutic, The presumption of continuity hermeneutic is the standard covenantal view in contrast with dispensationalism. And so he's always making this rhetorical argument in his books, especially in No Other Standard, where he says either you hold to the presumption of continuity or you're a dispensationalist. The problem is, is that that isn't true historically. No major reformed theologian or confession ever argued that point. Ever argued the presumption of continuity. I'm sure you might be able to, you know, the reform tradition is very has a lot of variety in it. So you may be able to find some obscure theologian who said, it. I don't know, but I'm not aware of any, and it's certainly not confessional. There are no reform confessions that say that. Uh, Reformed theology has always said that the moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is what continues, not the entire Mosaic law. But Bonson wants to say it's the entire Mosaic Law, with the exception of the restorative laws that deal with sacrifice and restoration for sin. He wants to say that the entire Mosaic Law, which means that the judicial laws are also part of the moral law. And that then leads to my second critique, which is, do you hear the contradiction in that statement? Listen to that. Listen to the statement. He says that... The judicial laws, the entire Mosaic law except for the restorative law, is the moral law, and therefore it continues. Except unless there is something in subsequent revelation that rescinds it or modifies it. There's a contradiction there. Yeah. Watson is arguing that the Mosaic law is the moral law, and it's rooted in God's unchanging nature. Well, if it is the moral law, then there can't be any exceptions. There can't be any further revelation That would subsequently rescind Or modify any part of it Right?
0: Yeah, because it would be rooted in God's immutable nature Exactly,
1: right? Is God ever going to say Okay, now uh, thou shalt have no other gods Before me, that was only for the old covenant Now in the new covenant (laughs) I've changed my mind Uh, It's okay now To worship other gods No, it's unthinkable That would totally violate God's nature So he can't have it both ways if the judicial laws are moral, then there is no way there could be subsequent revelation that would ever rescind or modify them. So my first critique is it's not traditional. It doesn't fit within the Reformed tradition. He's, he, he is unique. He made this up, and he's trying to always say, if you don't agree with me, you're a dispensationalist. No, I don't buy that. And secondly, it contains an internal self-refuting contradiction because you can't have it both ways either it's all moral and there's no exceptions no subsequent revelation rescinds it or you're admitting that some aspects of the mosaic law are not moral and therefore they could be rescinded and they could that they were that there are some aspects of the mosaic law that were positive law given only to Israel to govern Israel as a nation my third critique of the presumption of continuity is it's just a bad algorithm. And what I mean by that is, you know how take any uh, thing that you're trying to do at work where you're trying to come up with an algorithm to figure out, you know, what is the, the, the correct uh, list of documents that I need for this project. And so you create an algorithm to, to define it. And then you find out, oh, it gives me too many false positives and it leaves out certain uh, ones that I wanted. So it's a bad algorithm. Well, same thing here It's a bad algorithm Because if you take this presumption of continuity Here are some things that would continue in the New Covenant Because the New Covenant doesn't explicitly overturn them So, for example The Seventh-day Sabbath Uh, In the Old Covenant The Sabbath was on the seventh day of the week The New Testament never explicitly says The day has changed from the seventh day of the week To the first day of the week So if you're going to follow this presumption of continuity argument, you would have to say that we as Christians are still obligated to keep the Sabbath on Saturday, on the seventh day of the week. I don't think that that's what we want to say. There are other things too. For example, the cities of refuge. Uh, In Numbers 35, Moses tells Israel, here are the cities I want you to set apart to be cities of refuge where the manslayer, that is someone who is uh, guilty of um, accidentally killing someone, where they can flee until the death of the high priest so that the family members who are trying to get revenge and execute vengeance for the death of their relative uh, will not be able to to do so. To me, this is a great example of a judicial law. It clearly is judicial, right? right? It's a judicial law relating to civil government, civil magistrate, relating to murder and manslaughter and so on. But to me, it's clearly an example of a judicial law that is typological it's pointing ahead to something that is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of christ right christ is the city of refuge we are the ones that are guilty we have blood on our hands but we flee to him and he is the high priest who has to die so that we can be released from the guilt of the blood so here's an example of a judicial law that we continue today because the new testament doesn't say anything about it and yet we know if we just look at the big picture of biblical theology That the cities of refuge are a type of Christ And so it is fulfilled today But it's fulfilled in Christ And there are many other things too Um, Exodus 22.16 says that rapists should marry their victims Deuteronomy 21 talks about When you go and you capture women in war You can marry them Uh, Deuteronomy 21.15 talks about If a man has two wives He has to treat them fairly So does that mean that bigamy is allowed today? Uh, there's lever at marriage, where if uh, a man dies without having any children, then his brother should go and uh, raise up seed for him, Deuteronomy 25. Um, there's the water of bitterness in Numbers 5, where if a, ma- a husband thinks that his wife is being unfaithful to him, then she has to drink this water. And if she swells up, then she's guilty. So this is trial by ordeal. You know, I don't think we want to do that today. Um, there are many other things like this that if we use the presumption of continuity argument and we try to apply it consistently it's going to result in some things that I don't think even the theonomists would want to accept. Now the thing is is they might be able to come back and say yeah but there's reasons for all these things you know for example one of the, the laws in the Old Testament is Leviticus 19.19 19, that prohibits mixtures um, you know you can't mix two different types of seed in the same crop etc and uh, you might be able to say well but see this idea here is part of a general pattern it fits in with the ceremonial law and it fits in with the distinction between clean and unclean And so actually even though there's no explicit New Testament statement that repeals it it's part of the restorative laws because you can you can see that it fits within that general category of law okay well now you're beginning to use a different hermeneutic right now you're using a broader hermeneutic that looks at broader themes of biblical theology and typology and you're not sticking to your presumption of continuity argument anymore so that's what I see then is those are the three reasons why the presumption of continuity argument um, should be rejected
0: yeah I think that's I think that's really really helpful because I mean they're they're basically in order to to justify some of these within their own system, they really have to leave their system and, and um, right. go to what we would argue is probably just a better hermeneutic um, right. to, to understand those. But that hermeneutic that they then need to use is the same one that they look at us and say, well, you know, by what standard are you using autonomous reasoning?
1: You're a dispensationalist. You're a dispensationalist yeah. all that kind of fun right.
0: stuff. How would they answer? So I'm glad you brought up um, the, the, the trial bio deal in, in Numbers 5. Um, I had actually just finished a research paper um, for RTS dealing with Numbers Five when I was kind of getting into these theonomy debates. Oh wow, that's great! And, and I'd so, love to read it. <laughs> uh, I, I would be I would be worried, but I, I I'll let you read it. But but my major question was just after reading it, Numbers Five. Um, starting with that, starting with that section of the tribal idea, it's it's really a mixed law. I mean, you have hmm. you have some of the sacrificial system involved. Hmm. You have some civil stuff involved. You have the moral right. law about it. it's really a mixed law. It has all three. And so, my question for Theonimus, I'm not sure if you would know, maybe how they would answer this, is that if uh, the restorative laws or the or the or the cultic laws, um, they're going to say, you know, the exception they passed away. How do they then handle these mixed laws where the cultic was really kind of part and parcel with some of the other civil or or moral laws?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I'm not sure how they would handle that. It goes against their assumption that the judicial law is totally distinct from the ceremonial law and that the judicial law is really just part of the moral law and the ceremonial law is only restorative law dealing with sin. What you're pointing out is that no, even the judicial laws contain within them elements that are clearly typological, and so yeah, it just shows that you can't make that simplistic argument that you, that the judicial laws are moral.
0: Yeah. So so we all we, and we all have heard. So we've all talked to a theonomist, and they say, well, Jesus says that you know he did not come to abolish the law, um, and that every jot and tittle um, will will remain. How? How is it that um, the theonomists have interpreted this, this passage in Matthew uh, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and what is a, a better um, exegesis of, the, of that passage?
1: Great question. Yeah, so Matthew five seventeen and the next couple of verses really is the, the key proof text that Bonson um, really rested everything on. Uh, let's see if I have his book here, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. He uh, he deals with it right at the beginning. Uh, chapter one is introduction, but then chapter two is the abiding validity of the law in exhaustive detail, Matthew five seventeen to nineteen, and then he launches into a fifty page exegesis of of those three verses. Um, so really, this is the heart of his. He's resting a lot on this. Not everything, but a lot. And he's, he's basically saying this is the proof text that supports his presumption of continuity argument. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, and traditionally that was not a jot or a tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments And teaches others to do the same Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven So, what Bonson argues is uh, A couple of things One is that he argues um, That in verse 17 When Jesus says I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets But to fulfill them He thinks that the word that's translated Fulfill there In Greek it's the word plerao he thinks the word play rao, he does a word study on it, and he thinks it should be translated to confirm. So he doesn't think that the traditional translation of fulfill is right. Um, <clears throat> he says the reason he thinks that it has to be translated to confirm is because it's set in contrast with abolish, kata luo. I have not come to abolish, kata luo, but to fulfill. To play Rao, and so because it's the antonym of abolish, fulfill then must be the opposite of abolish. Well, what's the opposite of abolish? It's to confirm. It's to reinforce. It's to uh, to reenact and reconfirm the validity of something. So, and the reason he he thinks that it has to be the antonym is because of the word but in between. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word but in Greek is Allah. And he thinks that the word Allah um, is setting up an absolute contrast between antonyms. Unfortunately, in Greek, the word Allah doesn't always mean that. The word Allah just means not this, but rather this. And so it doesn't always have to be an antonym. Um, I could say, uh, Hey, Tyler. Um, Let's have a Skype call tonight Not in order to just chat Over friendly things But so that we can do a podcast Hmm. So is a podcast The opposite of having a friendly Social chat No No, they're just different Yeah, right. They're not opposites They're not antonyms of one another They're just different things I'm not going to do X instead I'm going to do Y So that's all Allah means here Do not think I came to abolish them Rather I came to fulfill them and what's really important is to see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses this thing called the fulfillment formula, you know, where he says, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he'll quote from Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it occurs around a dozen or more times in the, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's clear in Matthew that fulfill, it's the word it's the same word rao, the same Greek word, that's used in the fulfillment formula that is also used here in Matthew 5.17, it's clear in Matthew that he's thinking in terms of redemptive history. He's thinking that in terms of the fact that the old covenant was uh, basically prophetic. It was looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, and now he's saying the Messiah has come. You know how he says, for example, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, a greater uh, thing than the temple is here. He's referring to himself or something greater than jonah is here something greater than solomon is here so all of these prophetic elements of the old covenant are fulfilled in christ jesus is the new israel he's the new temple uh, and so he's also the new moses who is giving the final revelation of god's will for his people and that's why there's this whole uh, imagery here of him going up on the mountain just like moses went up on the mountain to receive the law and so Jesus is putting himself forward here as a new Moses, as one greater than Moses, who is giving the final interpretation of the law of God. And uh, this is explicitly stated in Matthew eleven thirteen, where Jesus says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So you see he's saying that even the law has a prophetic aspect to it. Yeah. Even the Mosaic law is prophetic. And so it's looking ahead to Christ and his ministry and his teaching and that's why then Jesus goes through and he says you've heard that it was said but I say unto you there are six of those antitheses and it's not always you know in every case that he's saying instead of what the old testament law says i'm saying do this but there is still some kind of contrast or some kind of progression or we could call we could say fulfillment that what the old covenant law taught was only partial and now Christ is giving us the fulfilled meaning and interpretation of what the law says. I mean, There might be a few cases in those six where you could say, well, he's really setting aside the Pharisaic misinterpretation of the law. That might work in one or two cases, but it doesn't work in all of them. You know, It doesn't work when Jesus says, uh, you've heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that there's only one exception. And that is sexual immorality. So he's clearly making a contrast there and saying that the Mosaic law was too lenient. Now I'm saying that it ought to be only on the ground of sexual immorality, not yeah. just for any reason. Yeah, or even so, or even
0: you've heard it said, uh, "Do not commit adultery."
1: Yeah, right? The, right. It's
0: it's not a it's not a contrast. Well, now you can you know feel free to commit adultery. It's it's the it's the antonym. It's well, no, if you it, now if you lust, right, you know that's adultery.
1: It's a sharpening of the law, making a heightening of it. Yeah. So, my point is, is that he's really trying to to make an exegetical argument based on the word but, uh, and making those two words abolish and fulfill as antonyms, but it doesn't work exegetically. If you look at any uh, major Greek dictionary, for example, the, the Greek-English lexicon by Frederick Donker, um, you know, there's a whole range of usages of the word Allah. It's not just one meaning. There's a whole range of meanings. Uh, It can mean but, it can mean and yet, it can mean however, it can mean not this, but this instead. I mean, there's just a a variety of usages of these words. And so to narrowly say it has to only mean uh, a contrast between antonyms is just, it's just not correct uh, exegetically. Another problem, though, with with Bonson's interpretation of Matthew 5.17 is that Jesus does not add the exception clause. So remember, his Presumption of continuity is we should presume that it continues except or unless subsequent revelation repeals it or modifies it. But Jesus does not include that exception clause. Jesus says every jot and tittle is binding. And in fact, Bonson himself, in his book No Other Standard, uh, on page 221, he, he paraphrases Jesus this way. He says, Jesus bound us to every jot and tittle of the Old Testament legislation of God's will. Not allowing us to subtract Even the least commandment Well Then where did your exception clause go? Now you don't have an exception clause Right? Right. So if you're going to take this verse And literally say that Jesus is saying In a literalistic way That every single commandment Of the Mosaic law Is still binding today Even the least commandment If you're going to say that's what he's literally saying Then it proves too much Because now You're saying We have to do everything We have to keep the Sabbath On the seventh day We have to have You know All the things As I listed before uh, Prohibition of mixtures The water of bitterness lever at marriage You know All those things In fact We even have to keep The ceremonial law We even have to offer Animal sacrifice And circumcise our children Which even Bonson would agree is Is not Still binding today So Obviously Jesus is not laying down this presumption of continuity argument here in fact what he's doing is the opposite he's saying the entire law down to the very john tittle is fulfilled in me and so what does that mean well it means that it's fulfilled it means that he is the fulfillment of the law so all of these things circumcision the sacrificial system the water of bitterness all of that is fulfilled in him and to say that we should literally keep it in its old testament form today is to go against the very point that Jesus is trying to make.
0: What what do you say at that point in response to the person who's going to say, "Well, you you're saying then that Jesus, you know, he he's he's abandoning the law, he's abrogating the the law. Um really you're just you're just kind of getting rid of the law whole hog."
1: Well, that's that's what Jesus is saying I don't want you to think. He's saying he's saying I'm going to go through and give you six antitheses. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And you're going to think that I'm abolishing the law. But I don't want you to think that. I'm not actually abolishing it. What I'm doing is I'm showing you the fulfillment of it. Right. I'm showing you that this is what the law was pointing to all along.
0: So you you also provided um, – th- this was this was an interesting point that I think you drew out in um, the, some of the sources that, that you, you gave to me before this. Um that Bonson appeals to some examples um, of the Mosaic Law where it's where it's binding on non-Israelites, right? So, so the the objection where I, I think where, where where he's kind of getting this is where, where if someone's going to say, well, the the Mosaic Law expired with Israel, right? Bonson's going to come back and say, well, well, you know, the law wasn't just for Israel because look, it applied to um, to these other nations. How do you then respond to to Bonson's uh, appeal to these instances?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This is a really important point. So this is basically chapter eighteen of his book Theonomy and Christian Ethics. The subtitle or the title of the chapter is the magistrate in nations surrounding Israel. So what he's what he's getting at here is uh, he's trying to respond to the 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 argument of someone like myself or Meredith Klein. Which is that, no, the Mosaic Law, especially the judicial law, was given to Israel as a nation. I mean, Westminster Confession says that. Chapter 19.4 was given to the nation of Israel as a body politic. It wasn't given to all the nations of the earth. And so it has to do with the unique covenant relationship between God and Israel. And so to say that the Mosaic Law should be enforced in the nations outside of Israel, such as the United States of America that is a a, a misapplication of the law and so Bonson's responding to that and saying no look there is evidence even in the Old Testament itself of the Mosaic laws being binding on the nations around Israel the magistrate in nations surrounding Israel and so chapter 18 he goes through and gives quite a number of examples of this Um, so some of the examples he gives are um, when God Judged uh, Sodom and Gomorrah So, you know, when when God sent um, Fire and brimstone against uh, Those wicked cities It was because they were Violating the Mosaic Law Now, of course, they weren't violating the Mosaic Law in its written form, they were violating it In uh, the form given Through natural revelation But they were violating the law They were violating the laws against Homosexual activity and so on or the Canaanites, when the Israelites were sent into the land to destroy the Canaanites, why were they told to uh, uh, devote the Canaanites to destruction? It was because of all their wickedness, because they were worshiping idols, because they were sacrificing their children to their gods, to the god Molech, uh, all the wicked things the Canaanites were doing. So they are responsible, even though they're not Israelites, even though they're Gentiles, they're pagans. They're responsible for the content of the Mosaic Law Um, When God was about to destroy Nineveh Jonah was sent to Nineveh to warn them That unless they repent, they would be judged Um, But what was the basis of judgment? It was the Mosaic Law Well, it was the moral law, but it was the Mosaic Law Because the Mosaic Law is the moral law, according to theonomy Uh, There's also Isaiah 14 Which is God's judgment against the king of Babylon uh, Because he was exalting himself Thinking that he was, you know, almost God, lifting himself up to this high place of authority, and God saying, "No, I'm going to cast you down, and humble you because you need to be put in your place." And there's even a story in the New Testament in Acts uh, chapter 12 where Herod Agrippa um, was struck dead by worms because he was, you know, making this great speech, and the crowd said, "It's the voice of a god and not of a man." And so here's a man, here's a, here's a person who. Was violating the first commandment And God judged him So he's using these examples then To say look The Mosaic law is binding On the nations surrounding Israel Not just on Israel as a unique nation My response to that is that I think that Bonson is actually equivocating On this phrase to be binding on What does it mean to say that the Mosaic law Is binding on non-Israelites? Um, well, yeah, of course, the, mo- the moral law is binding on everyone, right? Everyone's required to obey the moral law. Right. He- but he's using this phrase, binding on, saying that the, that the Mosaic law is binding on the nations to make a, a theonomic argument that the civil magistrates within these nations have an obligation to enforce the Mosaic law, including the penology. That's a little bit different. Now you're talking about what the civil magistrate ought to do as far as how he conducts his authority in using the power of capital punishment and the power to punish criminals. Do these examples talk about civil magistrates executing people for idolatry or executing people for homosexual activity? No, these, all these examples he gave... They have nothing to do with the civil magistrate enforcing the Mosaic law upon their people. These are all examples where God himself enforces the moral law and brings judgment upon the Gentiles, upon the pagans. So he's kind of equivocating on this phrase, binding on. If you say that the Mosaic law is binding on the non-Israelite nations, and then from that you conclude, therefore, the civil magistrate has to enforce the Mosaic law, including the penology— You're making a non sequitur there Now uh, He does give one example uh, In Ezra chapter 7 This is the only example of all of his examples That he gives in uh, chapter 18 Um, The one that does include A case where you actually have A non-Israelite civil magistrate Seemingly enforcing the Mosaic law Is Ezra 7 Verses 25 through 26 And actually I'd like to Just read that so we go Second Chronicles Ezra So this is in the letter That King Artaxerxes King Artaxerxes is the king of Persia uh, This is after the exile This is now in the post-exilic period When the people have gone back to the land And rebuilt the temple uh, King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra The priest um, A letter And the letter is pretty long It starts in verse 12 But at the very end, in verses 25 through 26, he gives Ezra the authority to enforce the law. He says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. Uh, Beyond the river means beyond the river Euphrates. All such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king... That judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So, th- this seems to be a case, unlike judgment on Sodom and the Canaanites and so on, this does seem to be a case where a Gentile civil magistrate is enforcing the Mosaic law. How would I respond? Well, first of all, notice that Artaxerxes only gives permission to Ezra. To appoint magistrates who will enforce the Mosaic Law in the region beyond the river. So that's the area where the Israelites are now, where the land of Judah, where the, the temple is. He's not saying, I'm going to enforce the Mosaic Law on my side of the river Euphrates, which is where he lives. He's not saying, I'm going to go into. The capital city of Susa And I'm going to tear down all the temples To my Persian gods He's just saying, Ezra, you have permission To enforce your law In the region where you live The other thing too to notice is If you read the context, we don't have time to read it But going back to verse 12 You read read what Ezra is being given Permission to do, the focus of it all here Until those last two verses The focus is on the temple uh, Artaxerxes is saying, look You have the right to Gather free will offerings from the Israelites that are living in Persia. They haven't returned to the land yet. Some of them haven't, and you can take that money and take it back to the land, and you have the authority to um, re-establish temple worship. The temple had been rebuilt already, but the temple worship had fallen into disrepair, and so. He's giving Ezra the authority To gather the vessels For the, He's going to take the vessels That were taken into captivity He's going to take them back To the land of Judah uh, He's going to use the money To buy bulls and rams and lambs And grain offerings and drink offerings To offer them on the altar In the house of the Lord And so on So the focus of it is on The reestablishment of temple worship And so that's why then When you get to the end and he mentions having magistrates who are going to uh, enforce the law, uh, I think that we have to interpret that as being part and parcel of this whole restoration of the temple worship. And so it's not – you can't just take those two verses out of context and say, oh, it's just talking about the judicial law and that's all that matters. No, the judicial law is being enforced here in order to support the reestablishment of temple worship. And it's interesting, too, how Artaxerxes speaks. Uh, he continually says, your God. He says, you know, you're allowed to worship according to the law of your God, and you can do whatever is required for the house of your God. He's not acknowledging God as his own God and then saying, okay, so I need to set up true worship in my country, and I need to destroy the temples and the gods of my country in order to follow the law. But if if he were truly doing what the theonomists think should be done, that's what he would do.
0: Yeah, and and I think what's what's really interesting about this one one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is a show called Hardcore History, um, and right now he's going actually through a whole series of um, the you know the, the 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 progression of kings through um, Persia and Syria and, and so forth. And right, one of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of these kings actually just kind of had a. Uh, domestic policy of you know happy citizens don't riot, and so if I mm-hmm, allow them right. to have their own their own kings and their own governance and their own uh, religious systems, they'll pay their taxes and they'll you know give their daughters for marriage and their sons for war, and they you know they'll be kind of integrated into the kingdom. And so this just seems to kind of be part and parcel with that. Israel, you know, exactly. you can go yeah. re- reset up reset up yourself. Those are your laws to govern yourselves. Go do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. It was very. The Persians were very different from the Babylonians. The Babylonians seemed to have a very scorched earth policy, but the Persians were more enlightened, and so they, yeah, they wanted to, like you said, they had a more pluralistic view, and so it wasn't just the Israelites that they were encouraging to do this; they were encouraging the other nations too, to uh, to do to reestablish the worship of their own gods.
0: Yeah, I can see how this this just wouldn't really support um, Bonson's uh, claim that it would support the enemy. Right. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please submit them to freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or stop on by the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Join me next time as I continue this discussion with Dr. Irons on theonomy. Good night and God bless.